Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Ian Pike, Chief Scientific Officer at Proteome Sciences, who shared a wealth of sound advice from his career to date. He also talked to us about how CROs have become a crucial part of drug discovery, the importance of serendipity, his one career regret, and being willing to pivot in your vision for your working life. This week on Careers in Discovery, I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Pike of Proteome Sciences. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to see you. Um, so, Ian, we always start by talking a little bit about you and what you're up to and, and the work that you're doing. So it'd be great to talk a bit about Proteome Sciences and, and the work that you're doing there. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, the organization? Sure. So um, I've actually been with Proteome nearly 20 years. It'll be 20 mm-hmm. years in November. And we've evolved enormously over that period. And uh, you know, you go into a career expecting it to last a few years, maybe you'll think about moving to somewhere else, but it's been such a fascinating journey as part of the evolution of uh, protein sciences back into the mainstream of, of mm. drug development and, and disease management. Uh, that I've never really felt the need to go and do that, but I've also been blessed that I've done lots of different roles within the organization. Yes. Uh, but at its heart today, Proteome Sciences is a contract research organization. We apply mass spectrometry-based analysis of uh, samples, mainly from pharmaceutical industry clients, a little bit of academic uh, client work, and a bit of um, uh, sort of more uh, academic research-based consortium uh, mm-hmm. funding uh, where we uh, can apply some of our specialist protein analysis tools uh, for those programs. And for the last, uh, getting on 10 years, probably, I've been uh, the chief scientific officer, mm-hmm. uh, and I've also been a, a main board director. Uh, but throughout uh, life at Proteome, I've done business development, I still do a lot of IP management, yes. uh, supporting sales and marketing activities. So it's a pretty broad uh, uh, set of functions and that stems from working in a small organization and I've worked in small I've worked in large and I have to say in general for me it suits better to be part of a smaller organization with lots of hats to wear mm-hmm. uh, yeah I think that's down to a personality trait so I'm a person that um, likes to do different things regularly changing from one topic to another topic to another topic so yes. a career a career in services is brilliant for that because you're always working on different projects true and i also found uh, earlier in my career that, that um uh, sort of academic technology transfer was an interesting we'll talk about that later mm-hmm. uh but now at Proteome sciences i really work mostly with the commercial team talking to our clients and really trying to understand what it is about their drug development programs they need help with? Why are they starting to look at protein analysis? And then using the sort of scientific background to design experiments that should give them greater insights to the biology they're addressing. 
mm -hmm. and also deeper understanding as to how their therapeutic agents are going to uh, intervene on those disease processes. And for me, that's the most exciting part of the role is being able to engage as part of the team of our, each of our clients to say, we really do understand what it is you need to do. And we really are yes. tailoring what we do to that particular question rather than just saying, we have this workflow, if you want to use it, we'll use it. So, uh, you know, it's important in that context that you have retained a scientific inquisitiveness, a scientific mm -hmm. flexibility uh, in your approach to customer engagement, rather than just selling a, a number of units of a standard product, because uh, yeah. generally that's not improving the situation for anyone. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I think there's been a trend of this, hasn't there, over the last few years of, of CROs, especially very specialist CROs, moving from um, sort of an outsourcing service for when someone doesn't want to build a lab or, or has overflow of work to actually real depth of specialist knowledge and being a partner in the discovery process and and, and really working with the, the sponsor companies to... I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I think people now understand that whilst uh, measuring a routine panel of cytokines or chemokines is going to give you some information, mm -hmm. it won't necessarily be that insightful. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, you have to look broader. And, and across all of the omics platforms, across all of the scientific disciplines, of course, there, there are roles uh, for people to step into uh, where maintaining that. Uh, sort of academic inquisitiveness, but in an industrial rigor is the most important thing to be able to do. And I think that's the critical thing that I've enjoyed in my career, that I've always been in a privileged position where I have the ability to do that, whether it's in R&D, in, in uh, drug development uh, or diagnostics development, where I was predominantly uh, spent my time yes. uh, through to in, into the contract services area. So, so there is no reason to fear losing your ability to engage in science mm -hmm. um, whilst moving into the industrial sector. You know, inquisitive scientists will always do well, whatever they choose to do. No, absolutely. And, and I was interested, we, we're here mostly to talk about your career, of course, Ian, and uh, we'll get to that very quickly. But um, I was interested as well, you mentioned you've been with Proteome Sciences for almost 20 years. Um, so today, I think there are more and more multi-omics data-based research programs, right? And proteomics being typically a core part of that. Um, that seems to have been a developing trend, I guess, as computational power has increased and an analytical power has increased. But it, I imagine the company's been through quite an evolution over the period of time that you've been there as, I guess, proteomics has increased in popularity and increased in use. No, absolutely. I, I mean, the only the only equivalent career uh, to this would have been a roller coaster tester, I think, because we've been through so <laughs> many uh, uh, sort of highs and lows in the proteomics uh, industry. Uh, so when I joined back in 2004, to proteomics was on a bit of a, an upslope again. Mm -hmm. uh, this was all still based predominantly around gel separations and uh, immunotechnologies, but mass spectrometry was beginning to make it a, as a significant platform. Right. And over the 20 years, I've probably seen at least uh, three significant peaks and a couple of troughs. Uh, and those peaks have really been driven each time by an uptick in the coverage of the proteome that we can deliver, mm -hmm. improvements in the uh, bioinformatics side of how we can actually learn 
what the peptides we measure in the mass spec come from and how yeah. they're relevant to biology. So that's been a fascinating journey to travel and see how the technology evolves. But I think what's the biggest driver really has been the fundamental acceptance now that there is poor correlation between transcript level and protein level. Mm -hmm. And that uh, uh, in, in, in the seminars I give, uh, I uh, paraphrase uh, the Shakespeare quote that, that um, all the proteins uh, in the cell are merely actors and the roles they play depend on uh, the costumes they wear to, yes. to yeah. such an extent. And, and it's so true because what happens in the cell, be that good or bad, is modulated by how proteins work together. And how you change a protein with a post-translational modification will dramatically mm -hmm. affect what it does, where it does, and who it does it to. So, uh, you know, I think people have tried using high throughput, uh, relatively simple technologies like transcriptomics to understand that. Yes. And the move into single-cell transcriptomics has been fascinating. But ultimately, just because there's a transcript there doesn't mean that there's a protein there. And if mm -hmm. the transcript moves up or down, doesn't mean the protein's going to change up. And of course, you know nothing more about the, the, the product of that transcript. Uh, so that's why those, those programs have been less successful than we hoped in delivering biological insights. And I think now the realization we need all aspects, genomics, transcriptomics, mm -hmm. proteomics, metabolomics, and so on is critical. So, so there is a wealth of opportunity for inquisitive scientists out there uh, to roll their sleeves up, get into one of them as their main discipline, but be aware of all the others because that, yes. that's, you, you can't work in isolation anymore in these different omics disciplines. You have to know what's going on in all of them, really. No, of course. And we'll probably come onto this as we talk about your career, but it, again, it's, a, it's something that we see across the industry is that, yes, you know, when you start your career as a scientist, you typically have really deep specialization in a particular area. But I think people who are successful in biotech they they develop breadth as well as depth and they they may not be an expert on every aspect of what they of what a company does because you can't be but they have an understanding they have an appreciation they understand the context in which their specialization yeah. operates and, um, and i think you know it all depends what your ultimate aspiration is if, if mm. you want to be a technical lead specialist in a particular omics area that that's absolutely fine yeah and you know it's good to be aware of some of the parallel disciplines, but it's not so critical. Uh, but if you want to get into a more strategic or senior role in an organization, then having that breadth uh, of, of knowledge driven by an, an enthusiasm and an interest outside of your main discipline is, is a critical thing. You know, maintaining that, that sort of uh, enthusiasm to learn, to understand, and, and perhaps to try and then interpret is a nice way of saying it or steal the best ideas as i tend to, to, <laughs> to do and, and and think of it uh from parallel disciplines can help you move your own uh your own field forward so uh you know i think there there are lots of reasons why an industrial environment is a good place to do that mm -hmm. uh, compared to an academic one uh where you yeah you're always trying to chase the next grant in academia in industry you can generally get uh, internal funding to help develop things yes uh, to a certain level. So uh, again, you know, I wouldn't say you need to have schism between academia and industry, but there are different facets of, of the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So Ian, I want to take it right back to the very beginning, and then we can talk a bit about your, your journey to today, because you, as you yeah. touched on earlier, you've done lots of different things all around 
sort of drug development, diagnostic development, treat the medical technology development, um, p- potentially driven, as you say, by a personality trait of wanting to be involved in different things. Originally, if my information is correct, you, you were a microbiologist and bacteriologist. Well, I was, and uh, I will start by uh, confessing that my career is uh, a function of serendipity rather than actual sure. choice, as so many are, mm-hmm. uh, and also an inherent enthusiasm for the academic sportsman life, which uh, de- delayed me entering the world of work as long as possible. Right. Uh, so um, having done my sort of schooling, I was uh, looking for something in the biological space. I enjoyed biology. It's something that I felt I did quite easily mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want uh, I didn't want to do medicine I knew that that was going to be just too much work yeah uh, so I knew nothing of microbiology to be honest until talking to careers advisors at school and they suggested why don't you look at that as a degree uh, and I did and I ended up at Leeds University uh, which was a fantastic place to study microbiology uh, back in the 80s and came out of uh, that with a, with a uh, moderately okay degree, a 2-1, and uh, was then invited to stay on and do a PhD. Now, mm-hmm. the one regret I have in life is that I did that. Uh, not that I did the PhD, but I stayed in the same place. Ah, okay. so I, I, with hindsight, <clears throat> I would definitely have done it elsewhere, and probably I would have tried to do it outside of the UK, because I think you just learn so much about international collaboration, which is so important, uh, both in careers, however you proceed in science, Uh, but also you learn a lot about yourself. And uh, Mm. I think that's that's a valuable thing. No, of course. So yeah, so from there, um, uh, having done microbiology, uh, and my course was quite medically oriented, at least, Mm -hmm. uh, that got me into a final year project, uh, developing a diagnostic for invasive candidiasis. So lots of transplant patients uh, in the early 80s were Mm -hmm. uh, uh, struggling with unknown disease, unknown infections that that were uh, rapidly fatal. Uh, And it turned out that uh, uh, rather than bacterial viral yeast infections were were becoming a a significant issue in that population. Yes, okay. So my uh, uh, initial final year study was to develop um, immunoassays uh, and ultimately a Western blot. I think I did the first Western blot in, in the microbiology department in Leeds. Okay. Uh, certainly one of. Uh, and then uh, the PhD really extended that uh, and trying to understand how what we would now call a biomarker. We didn't have that word uh, back in, <laughs> in 85 when I started, but mm-hmm. how was that uh, protein signature being evolved from the organism into the bloodstream in, in a way that we could use it diagnostically? And that sort of um, triggered a lifelong enthusiasm for diagnostics mm-hmm. um, uh, and took me uh, into uh, a postdoctoral position down in Nottingham. Yes. Uh, and that, that was really quite, quite an interesting thing. So I started off with, with a potential diagnostic application, but uh, rapidly morphed into um, developing monoclonal antibodies as surrogates for uh, small molecules mm-hmm. in high throughput screening, which <clears> seemed a crazy idea now, and the sponsor never thought to use those antibodies therapeutically, which right. 10 years later it would have been the obvious thing to do. And, and again, that just shows timing is everything. <laughs> True. Um, 
but I, enjoy, I enjoyed that and made hundreds of different monoclonals, a mm. really good process. But again, most of the work was about using them for assay development. And from that background, uh, and I also learned things like epitope mapping and just all sorts of crazy fun things to do, a little bit of early mass spectrometry, funny enough. Right. Uh, I then went to, I, I realized that I was not the most natural academic. And okay. I was frustrated with the pace of academia and actually the lack of translation from academic endeavor to near patient or, or direct patient benefit was something that frustrated me mm. quite a bit. Uh, which is not to say that the academic approach is wrong and, and that they shouldn't maintain that distance. Yeah. But for me, individually, I really want to see that translational aspect. No, I understand. Uh, so that's why I really decided at that point, and that's probably uh, the, the first conscious decision I made, was to step out of the academic world into an industrial world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, just because I felt that things I worked on were more likely to become part of healthcare in the future. And that, that's kind of what motivated me for science. Yes, makes sense, makes sense. And then so having come to that realization, you decided to take a step into industry. Tell us a bit about that first step with Murex and, and the work that you did there. So um, that, that was, uh, again, a very interesting time that I uh, <coughs> joined uh, initially Welcome Diagnostics. Right. Welcome. Uh, Pre-Glaxo uh, Welcome, pre-GSK, uh, was a pretty successful pharmaceutical company, but it had a separate diagnostics business also, mm -hmm. as a lot of drug companies <clears> did <throat> at that point, Abbott, yes. Roche, and so on. Uh, but as was also part of the trend there, uh, as mergers and acquisitions were becoming a big, big thing for, for the pharmaceutical sector, uh, these non-core assets were being divested. So uh, within nine months of joining, we'd been sold off. Uh, we had to move through from the Beckenham site in, in South London around to Dartford. <clears throat> and that itself was an interesting experience of seeing how you move an organisation of 65 research scientists uh, and 20 odd labs, uh, mm. and, and whether it's 30 miles or, or 3,000 miles, doesn't really matter, the, the principles are the same. Uh, but within that role, um, I worked on a whole bunch of different projects. Again, that satisfied my uh, sort of butterfly mentality in a way. Uh, but I was successful in developing three uh, diagnostic kits that made it into the market, uh, right. all around hepatitis C uh, testing, which was becoming a big issue at that point. And what I learned uh, there was that uh, whilst uh, academic rigor and uh, scientific integrity are fundamentally essential, mm. you always have to have in mind what it's going to cost to manufacture, how it's going to go into the market, what does the market want something to be able to do. So that of course, does yeah. direct your research. So you don't have the same degrees of freedom necessarily that you would have in an academic research environment. But I also kind of like that because it, it gave you a target to aim for. Uh, and it also gave you an insight into the other aspects of healthcare, which are, it's wonderful having an idea, but you've got to be able to make it and you've got to be able to sell it. So True. Um, <clears throat> that, that was uh, really interesting. And that also opened the door to understanding the importance of intellectual property rights. So as an academic, I think I would had always understood that patenting anything to do with healthcare was immoral and uh, outrageous and, <laughs> and dreadful. And then you sort of grow up and enter the real world and you realize that incentivization and the ability to recuperate the development costs can only mm. happen in a system where there is some degree of protection for the innovator. 
And uh, I kind of, uh, as we started rolling out these, these products for hepatitis C testing, we were developing IP strategies. There was some love stuff around peptide chemistry that I was involved with. Um, and that really got me interested in the intellectual property space mm -hmm. as much as um, the lab work, as much as uh, sort of developing materials for sales and marketing, all of which are functions that go with being a group leader in a product development role. In, yes. In, whether it's drug development or whether it's uh, diagnostics development. And again, you know, I think that suited me that, that it wasn't just the lab work. You know, you had to attend mm. meetings on how we were going to position the, the product in the market, what customer feedback of what they'd like to see from a product so that you know how to uh, organize and develop your research. Uh, so it's a very different approach to academia. It's yeah. much more team driven. Acad academia tends to be, excuse me, it tends to be a little more insular mm. uh, in a way. Yes, you'll collaborate across a group within your department, but often, uh, you know, you might want to protect yourselves from being scooped by uh, your competitor groups. So, and whilst there's lots of interfacing at conferences and so on, yes. um, it, it's not so multidisciplinary. Uh, I would say, in terms of academic research, whereas industrial research is absolutely underpinned by that multidisciplinary approach and uh, different awareness. Yes, I see. So you, I, I suppose over your time there, then, as you say, you developed a, an understanding of the the commercial questions that need to be asked or the, the operational questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, and, and, you know, you developed a, a foundation, I suppose, of of at least understanding of that side of the industry um, and then you took a step into uh, a much more commercially focused role with with MRC technology so so tell us a bit about that and about I suppose the things that you had to learn in that role as well would be interesting uh, absolutely and the one thing uh, that you have to realize is you never stop learning uh, particularly sure. in, in scientific disciplines you're always there's always opportunities to learn um, so actually the move out of Murex uh, uh, was uh, more a function of the fact that uh, uh, we became a target for merger and acquisition, mm -hmm. uh, that we were acquired by Abbott uh, and uh, their diagnostics business. Um, and at that point, um, we got into this applying for your own jobs and, and uh, you know, justifying your existence, not sure which research programs would be going. And they were moving much more into molecular diagnostics, primarily DNA diagnostics. Yes. And I wasn't massively enthused at the prospect of that. Uh, so I felt it was time for me to look at doing something different. So mm -hmm. uh, at that point, uh, I kind of said, right, I'm just going to quit and I'll see what comes up. Uh, so I did, uh, and that, that was quite a crazy, scary thing to do in a way, <laughs> uh, but I knew I wasn't going to thrive in that organization. Yeah. And uh, uh, for, for the uh, younger audience, uh, you used to have to go to a news agent by uh, a thing called New Scientist that had lots of job adverts <laughs> in it. You do it all online now, of course. Uh, and in the back of New Scientist were three or four uh, adverts for technology transfer roles. Yeah. And as I said, I, I'd become interested in intellectual property. Space and a little bit about the licensing uh, side of that. So I applied for several, uh, ended up at MRC Technologies uh, and absolutely loved it from day one. Right, okay. Uh, it's just such a brilliant place for, for an inquisitive scientist who likes lots of different projects uh, to work in because 
uh, within a technology transfer office of a university or a research institution or, or a, a major charitable funder, uh, you're going to work on lots of different projects. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I covered uh, sort of virology naturally, uh, being a microbiologist, but neuroscience, um, oncology, the whole raft of different areas at very different levels, some really yeah. quite early stage academic discoveries where we were evaluating whether intellectual property was the right way or if there was even an IP to be derived, mm -hmm. all the way through to taking patents and working on the prosecution side of that, so working with the uh, patent agents to address um, the uh, challenges from the patent offices as to why they wouldn't allow patents. And, yes. and that, that I found fascinating. I always had a quasi uh, sort of legal approach to these things and yeah. I found that absolutely fascinating. I still do and I still do a lot of that work also. Um, but then you have to take it all the way through to find somebody who's interested in buying it and then doing the deal with them and that's mm -hmm. even more of an intellectual challenge because you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes and understand why would they value it at a certain level. What in there would they try and push back on and you have mm. to have an answer to try and say no you can't chisel me for uh, you know half the value because of this particular argument uh, and again you know preparing for that and building out the, those arguments is uh, yeah, an interface between scientific legal psychological uh, uh, aspects which, which yes. is absolutely fascinating you have to have the right mentality for that uh, but for mm -hmm. a, a junior scientist who's interested in something away from the bench. Uh, I think uh, working at tech transfer office is fantastic. Also, you generally only hear about successful science. So again, right. if you're someone who, who, who can't take the knocks of failed experiments, then uh, a TTO role is also pretty good. Fair enough. Yeah. And, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, mm -hmm. If you like dealing with success, go and work in a tech transfer office, you will still fail. Uh, you know, there are still technologies that won't ever be marketable or, or that people won't value uh, where you need it to be, but it's great fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, sort of uh, at MRC, uh, that, that was a very broad church. And then when I moved from there to Cancer Research Ventures, that, that was slightly different as a role uh, in that uh, CRV didn't have its own source of intellectual property. So whilst right. it was part of Cancer Research UK, uh, Cancer Research UK had their own technology transfer office. And then they set up Cancer Research Ventures because they've realized that a lot of uh, smaller charities funding research, a lot of smaller research institutes didn't have their own uh, sort of capacity and they couldn't justify having capacity to generate and then monetize IP. Yes. Uh, and so Cancer Research Ventures was formed to be a third party tech transfer office, basically. Uh, and very successfully, I, I might add. So I was brought in. Uh, to that, uh, as they were expanding, ultimately ended up with responsibility for uh, Scandinavia and jointly for parts of North America, and absolutely loved it. Again, it, it's fascinating. They're going out auditing research institutes, looking mm -hmm. at their science, uh, trying to tease out where uh, some of the stuff they're working on could go and whether that was likely to have any uh, sort of interest to pharmaceutical or diagnostics industry, and then preparing bids for uh, managing the IP for them and winning that over. So that got into a much more transactional, entrepreneurial space. Yes, uh, I see. 
uh, sort of having to prepare cases to get funding from different organisations to help support those activities. Yeah. So uh, again, for, for the intellectual butterfly, it's a great place to be because you're always moving, you're always generating new ideas and so on. It's, yeah, as you say, for someone who wants that variety, you know, you, you're still close to science, you're still looking at new science every day, right? So you're still you're still sating that part of your, your curiosity, but you're, you're doing yeah. the legal part of IP, you're doing the BD yeah. side of the role, you're getting involved in, in um, the, the commercial transaction side of it, there's a huge amount to... Absolutely, to Tom, but, but at the end of the day, the thing that I found most rewarding in all of that was the basic science bits. So right, okay. The, the going in, talking to each research group. Uh, I remember we went over to a major cancer centre in the US that, that had uh, no uh, real internal tech transfer capability. And we just spent a week there talking to each of the group leaders, just understanding what they did to start with. Mm -hmm. It took us two or three days just to understand what they did and then teasing it out and saying, you know, where do you think this is going to go? One of, one of them were, was uh, an early progenitor of what what's ultimately become CAR T therapy. And, yes. and this was, uh, you know, in the, uh, the uh, late nineties. Uh, and you think, wow, um, this stuff's amazing. It's mind blowing yeah. how, how good these technologies are, but then you have to bring it back and say, but how, how can that benefit people ultimately? Mm -hmm. And what path does it need to go on to get there? And that was the bit that I really enjoyed was trying to tease out the bits that had that potential and also the bits that we're never going to have that potential, but we're still academically of value. Um, yes. Yeah, I see. Uh, and I think the institutions found that helpful as well. Mm. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, especially now that, that there's a lot more emphasis in academic institutes on impact as well, right? There's, there's, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, focus on that. So yeah, I asked, there is. And, and I would just, ju just finish off by saying, uh, coming back to comments I made earlier about uh, intellectual property, it's not a bad thing. Uh, so, so mm. many. Uh, sort of people entering academia consider, uh, as I did uh, in, in my early academic career, that patenting genes, patenting proteins, patenting drugs is a bad thing and everyone should have access to everything. Uh, the world doesn't work that way. Yeah. And you do learn that actually the best way to take your brilliant science into patient benefit is through the IP process. And your organization and the tech transfer people involved should be able to understand they don't have to interfere with your academic endeavors, but still secure the IP. So mm. we spend a lot of time working with uh, the group leaders to say, look, you can still publish, you can still talk at conferences. All we need to do is know a few weeks in advance that that's going to happen. Right. And then we can make the rest work. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, I would encourage anyone who has concerns around intellectual property or the, the potential of uh, that as a career for them to, to sort of go and look more deeply into the field because mm -hmm. uh, it, it is entirely complex, but it's not inconceivable. No, makes sense. And I asked this question in our last episode as well, because the person we were interviewing also spent some time in, in tech transfer. Um, I, I suppose I'm kind of thinking of this from the point of view of, of scientists who may be in academia who think they have an idea or think they have um, something that they'd like yeah. to to progress. I mean, what, what, what were the what were the particular things that you used to look for? So you, you talked about good science and you talked about seeing how that could impact people and, and benefit people. Was there anything else that particularly made something worthwhile to, to progress for you? And at the end of the day, there, there was no you know, combination of things you could say you have to tick these boxes. Right. Uh, and it was as much about the 
person leading the research mm -hmm. as much as it was about the research itself. So there were some great things that really would have done fantastically well through an IP tech transfer process. But if the people involved are so adamantly against it, right, it was pointless trying to push the issue because because uh, you know if they're not willing to participate, then it, it just becomes yeah, of course. attritional and and no one's actually going to enjoy the process and nothing good is ever going to come out of it. Having said that, there are people who start off that way who can ultimately understand the benefits and understand that the process isn't that painful for them. And if they're willing to hand it over for, for the IP side, uh, they can do that. So I would mm. recommend to anyone who thinks that they have an idea uh, from their academic research that could get to uh, patients ultimately, that they talk at an early stage of their tech transfer office. Your tech transfer office will help you. Yes. They are there to support and guide you and not to get in your way. And uh, that's a misnomer that existed certainly 20 years ago when I was in the field. I think mm. it's changed dramatically. As good experience from uh, group leaders is uh, disseminated through their organizations and they, they reflect the good experience they've had. But it's also important that tech transfer offices uh, have a good pool of talent to pick from. So yes, again, true. I would encourage enthusiastic uh, entrepreneurial scientists to consider that as a career because it is a hoot. It's just great fun. <laughs> now, it's an interesting point that you make about, I suppose, the engagement with the process. And I guess that is in some ways a reflection of the sort of intellectual adaptability of the person leading the project as well, right? Because I mean, you know this better than better than I do, but the reality is that to take something and take a technology to a point where it's going to treat patients, the likelihood is it's going to change in some way over that process, right? So you've got to be able to adapt. Absolutely. To... No, ab absolutely. And you are handing over your kids to be tutored yeah. developed <laughs> by some technology transfer office will make sure you're part of that journey, at least for a while. Yeah. No, and please. most people acquiring technology would need you to be part of that process. So you're not going to be closed out. No. Uh, and then it's up to the individual as to how well they, they uh, uh, sort of engage in that process and how long they will stay involved in that process. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, but also working in industry, you know, I, I'm an inventor on multiple patents, uh, both at Wellcome uh, and then at Pregium Sciences. And at the end of the day, I saw products get into the market because we had that IP. Uh, you know, we've got some fantastic technologies at ProGM Sciences around the Tandem Mass Tank uh, um, uh, platform. Those would never have been picked up by Thermo Scientific if there wasn't a strong IP position right. to protect their investment in taking our products and, and putting them into kits and selling them worldwide. And they've done a fantastic job at that. Uh, ProGM Sciences has done a fantastic job innovating in that space, mm -hmm. uh, developing uh, robust products that can be sold by the world leader in, in uh, scientific uh, uh, resources. So, you know, IP is the key to all of that. And it means I've got lots of great relationships uh, uh, at yes. Thermo. I, I've interacted with lots of great scientists who use the products and want to understand more about them. So, so that whole IP space, it, it's an enabler uh, and mm -hmm. it really has to be driven by the people responsible to make sure it doesn't interfere with the intellectual endeavor and the, the scientific value of what's being done. No, of course. So, so coming back to Proteome Sciences, so you then post-cancer research, you joined yeah. as the chief business officer. Um, yeah. It, it, what, 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 
where was the company at at the time and what you know where where was the industry and what was the what was the organization that you walked into then? so so the company at that point had just exploded really so mm. <clears throat> in uh, 2001 uh, a year before i joined uh, the first research lab was established at the institute of psychiatry up in denmark hill and that was very serendipitous right um the CEO had met some researchers there. They wanted to be able to do proteomics and had some money but didn't know how to do it. Uh, prote- or Electrophoretics Limited, as it was then, wanted to set up some labs but didn't know where to do that and didn't have the money to buy some of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it was a perfect combination. And we, we were very successfully uh, situated there for 15 and a bit years uh, where we really provided some cutting-edge technology around proteomics to uh, the uh, King's College researchers, whilst at the same time we were able to start doing little bits of, of contract research. But our business model then was uh, very much internal research driven, generate IP and licensing. And over the and, and then in 2002, just before I joined in the summer, uh, the company had acquired uh, the proteomics group from Hoechst uh, okay. in Frankfurt. Yeah. Uh, and that was again a divestment of non core assets prior to merger. Uh, but it meant we picked up um, uh, around 20 scientists, some mass specs, uh, some nice labs, and most importantly, the technology that will become TMT, uh, mm. uh, one of our core products today, one of our core revenue sources today. Uh, and since then, we've evolved by growing the, the German organization, grew the London organization, we acquired new generations of mass spectrometers along the way. Uh, to always improve, always try and be at the uh, sort of leading edge of what's possible in yes. proteomics. Uh, and then in 2017, we, we started a pivot uh, out of the uh, sort of hybrid of uh, a lot of internal research and a little bit of uh, customer work to a fully fledged 100% CRO. Mm-hmm. Um, we completed that journey uh, probably a couple of years ago, and we've seen our um, sort of uh, service income increase really well uh, since then. Uh, that's a journey we continue uh, yes. and uh, we will uh, maintain that and we're now just looking at expanding out with new technologies. So uh, within the original role of, of Chief Business Officer, I was really uh, providing technical input to sales and uh, managing IP mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, licensing. Uh, and now, as, as Chief Scientific Officer, I'm more uh, sort of, uh, as I said, engaging with customers, designing experiments, putting those into the organization and, and helping with reporting, but also uh, horizon scanning, looking at what's coming up next. Uh, so, for example, I'll push into single cell proteomics, uh, yes. which is a very exciting uh, prospect, technically very challenging, uh, and something that I think is ideally suited for a CRO because mm. uh, it's so technically difficult that uh, few academic centres will be able to set it up well and do it reproducibly well on people on, you know, rolling two-year contracts, three-year contracts. So, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I think we have a good opportunity there to establish this as a core uh, piece of the drug development pipeline to look at how individual cells are responding differently treatments and how subpopulations evolve over time. So, so uh, you know, it's things like that, looking at how we can uh, better use machine learning tools, mm-hmm. how we can better integrate multi-omics strategies. So that's the uh, sort of bit that keeps my academic kind brain uh, excited. Yeah, whilst absolutely. The customer interaction is a bit that, that keeps my transactional brain uh, 
completely occupied. So, so it's a nice hybrid existence that, uh, you know, I think is partly carved out because of who I am and that's how I wanted my career to go. Uh, but also it's a role that, that uh, an organisation like Proteum needs. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and it's uh, uh, certainly a mutually rewarding uh, 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 sort of setup that we have uh, that, that maintains. Uh, I, I would say across our organisation, we try and make sure that we have the right people in the right role so that they feel fulfilled and the company is, is being driven forwards by innovators, uh, but people who actually deliver as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And through, I appreciate the different roles and there's been different focuses through your time there. Um, what are the things that do you think that you took from your career prior to that, whether that was in tech transfer or in, in diagnostics previously, diagnostics research previously into this? And were there things that have remained important to you throughout that journey? Yeah, absolutely. Inquisitiveness is, is uh -huh. the key thing. You have to remain uh, sort of interested in all aspects of what you do, but also very questioning. And uh, I think most people in scientific research, uh, at least once they've been in it for a couple of years, will realise that nothing goes as you expected to do in biology. Right. <laughs> you know, engineering must be really quite boring because it really is quite predictable. And uh -huh. My daughter's an engineer, so I know this. Um, whereas biology is completely and constantly unpredictable. And you may think you have your hypothesis worked out, you may have all the supporting evidence, and then you'll test it in a slightly different way, and it all falls apart. And mm -hmm. you've got to be resilient. Uh, you know, I, I would say the, the two things that you need most are inquisitiveness and resilience, because things will fall apart at the last minute. And that's true whether it's scientific research or making a deal. You know, yes. sometimes you can have a deal ready to sign, and for whatever reason or no reason, it then just falls apart and then you've got to start at the bottom of the hill again. And mm -hmm. uh, at that stage, you just have to dust yourself down and say, right, first part, I'm going to try and understand why it fell apart. If I can find a reason, I can address it. If there is no reason, then I just have to push forwards and do it again. Yes. And, you know, if you have that sort of robustness, you have that inquisitiveness, then you'll certainly be able to, to go uh, a, a long way with your science and never have to give up your science. And I think that's the key thing for, for people in early careers in uh, academia and industry, never lose sight of why you got there in the first place. Mm. Your scientific desire, your scientific inquisitiveness and carry that with you wherever you go. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, it's the perennial challenge, isn't it? And the thing that, that makes life uh, interesting is that Unfortunately, you don't tend to learn that much when things are going well. It's when, it's when things don't go well that you pick up the most important. Well, I, I would say that that's absolutely true. But the problem, the problem then is that you tend to close your mind. And, sure. and it's probably only with retrospect that you can look at that experience and say, you know what, it was horrible and it was stressful. And it's, it's uh, taken a few lumps out of me, but at the end of the day, I've come out <laughs> sort of a more resilient, uh, a more educated uh, and a more flexible individual. Uh, and, and that's the other critical thing, isn't it? Continual learning, yes. be, be open to everything. Absolutely. So Ian, you may well have touched on this already because we've covered a lot of ground. It's been, it's been really interesting to explore your career with you, but any other advice that you would give to people starting out on, on their scientific career, starting out in, in research or in tech transfer or in commercial roles in the industry? 
Is there anything else you'd say would be a, a key learn for you over the years? Yeah, I, I think the, the things that I take most are that I started out with a fairly low-level plan. Uh, I didn't really envision myself as a chief scientific officer at some point, uh, but some people do. And if mm. you do, pursue that plan for as long as you can. And if it's not ultimately going to be what you want it to be, be flexible. Yeah, yes. Companies pivot, individuals should pivot too. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying the dream I had when I was 22 uh, and coming out of my degree and, and through my first year of PhD or post uh, uh, postgraduate work doesn't need to be the vision I have when I'm 40. And don't be scared of change. Mm. Yeah, change will happen. Whatever you do, a lot of change is forced on you. Uh, so accept it prepare for it and have a number of strategies that you might want to pursue depending on what situation you find yourself in. Yeah. And that's that sort of flexibility and that willingness to go with with uh, where the world takes you is something that's really important, so particularly in a scientific discipline. Yeah, and I think your priorities change as your as your life changes they as do. well, doesn't it? And so Absolutely. reviewing that plan is is a good habit yeah. to get into. But it sounds like a really exciting time coming up for proteome sciences. As you said, you're moving into single cell proteomics. There's lots of new things coming through as well as the work that you're doing. Um, we wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ty. It's, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I hope that, um, uh, that uh, people listening to this will see that, uh, you know, even if you don't have a firm plan at the outset of your career, <laughs> you can still develop a, a very rewarding career. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.